Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn back with me for the final time to 1 Corinthians 11. As Lord willing, we'll be finishing this chapter this morning in our exposition of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 27. And I'll read down through the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. And I'm going to preach a sermon this morning entitled, Judge or Be Judged. Judge or be judged. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 27, these are the words of God. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat... Tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. We live in a society in which one of the worst things you can be is judgmental. The sin of judging is a heinous transgression in the eyes of this secular culture. Do anything you want, but forbid that you should ever tell someone they are wrong. All sorts of debauchery and immorality is embraced and celebrated, but making the statement that someone or something is objectively in error will quickly get you the social death penalty. Because that is a sin against the God of tolerance and embracing whatever wind the culture is blowing that particular day. I believe that there is a Bible college out there somewhere for unbelievers. And at this unbelievers Bible college, there's only two classes. There's a course on John 3.16, and there's a class on Matthew 7.1. How many of you have committed the sin of judging and you've objectively stated that something is wrong only to have a lost person that doesn't even believe in the Bible or the God of the Bible quickly quote John 3.16 and tells you, well, you need to be more loving like Jesus because God so loved the world and whosoever believes, it doesn't matter, quit with all of your judging. And then they follow that up with their other class, Matthew 7.1, judge not lest you be judged. The irony is that in Matthew 7, Jesus is not telling his disciples not to judge. In Matthew 7, what he's actually doing is giving instructions on how to judge righteously. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you're commanded to judge. Realize that this morning? Christian, you must judge. You must judge. Now, there is a difference between merely being judgmental and judging righteous judgments. Big difference. 
We as Christians are not called to be characterized by a critical spirit that causes us to always find the worst in everything and puff ourselves up in a proud attitude thinking we're better than everyone else. That's being judgmental. Don't do that. But we as Christians are to judge righteous judgments. That is, we are to examine everything in light of what God says in His Word. Contrary to popular opinion, blind tolerance is not a virtue, but a curse. It's a curse. If we are blindly accepting and embracing everyone and everything, regardless of what God has to say, we are disobeying the command to judge righteous judgments. Before we embrace something, before we champion something, before we promote something, we need to ask the question, what does the Word of God say about it? That's a judgment. And the number one thing, this is all introductory, the number one thing that we are commanded by God to judge is ourselves. Ourselves. In fact, this is where obedience to the command of judging righteous judgments begins. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite! First... Remove the plank from your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What is Jesus saying? Judge righteous judgments, but before you judge others, judge yourself. Judge yourself. Now, here's what Jesus isn't saying. He's not saying, well, if you've ever committed this sin, you have no ground to to say it's wrong. It's not what he's saying at all. When the world says, well, I don't want to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. You know what I say to that? Two things. Number one, we got room for one more, so why don't you join us? 10.30, Sunday morning, Wednesday, 6.30. We'll see you there. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. Yes, this church is full of hypocrites. But guess what? We know we're hypocrites. We don't want to be hypocrites. And so we pray, God, save me from my hypocrisy. When I come to church and I worship you and I love you, but then I go and I commit sin, that's hypocrisy. Save me from it. The only difference is you don't realize what a hypocrite you are. The judgment of self that God calls us to is to be a continual and ongoing aspect of our daily lives as we search our hearts and try ourselves through the lens of Scripture. But there's one occasion that God provides for His people at which they are to give special attention to serious, sober self-examination. And that occasion is the Lord's Supper. Indeed, you cannot rightly participate in this ordinance without first examining the state of your heart, judging the condition of your soul, and considering your relationship both with God and with His people. You must do that. You must examine yourself. 
In this way, the Lord's Supper becomes to us an agent in our sanctification as it forces us to deal with our sins and pursue greater conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the failure of the Corinthians was a failure to judge. They did not understand, they did not judge the gravity and the seriousness of what they were gathering to do when they observed the supper. Therefore, they did not judge their own motives and their own desires to make sure they were coming to the table in a right manner. Listen, if you're doing something and you don't think it's that important, then you're not going to be too concerned with the condition of your heart when you do it. But if you think, I'm going to do something that is of great importance, then you will think, then I need to make sure that I'm in the right state of mind to do this thing. They did not judge how they observed the supper to see whether it was unto the glory of God or whether it was merely to their own carnal pleasures. And so Paul writes this chapter to confront and correct the Corinthian abuses of the Lord's Supper. In verses 17 through 22, he begins by addressing their divisive behavior that caused them to pervert the supper in the first place. Remember what they were doing. The rich members of the church were getting there early and they had their big feasts and they did not wait for the poorer members of the church and they huddled together and they partook of the food and they didn't leave anything and the poor members showed up to the church and the rich members were off in the corner huddled around their crock pots drunk. Drunk at the supper. Gross display of selfishness and a lack of love for one another. Well, then in verses 23 through 26, which we looked at last Lord's Day, we see that Paul reviews the basics of the supper and he demonstrates to us how Christ is preeminent in every aspect of the supper. What Paul is saying in those verses is this, if you truly understand what the Lord's Supper is and what the bread and wine represent, how could you ever come to the table with such division or disregard? And now in verses 27 through 34, Paul's going to close this section and he's going to close it with some instructions. Some instructions on how to prevent a faulty abuse of the Lord's Supper. Um, In your Christian life, let me just say this to you. You would do well to look for preventative grace that you find in the Word of God. I'm not trying to tell you to go and be a legalist and build fences around your fences and create for yourself laws uh, to keep you from breaking other laws. But what I am saying is it's far better to, to ask the question, Lord, how do I prevent sin? How do I prevent uh, um, mistakes and prevent doing the wrong thing rather than correcting errors that have already been committed? So Paul's saying in these verses that we're looking at this morning, if you'll do this, you'll avoid what you have been doing at the supper. These are verses that we must follow if we want to come together for the glory of God when we observe the supper. So let me give you just three things from this text. Number one, I want you to see the caution delivered. The caution delivered. Paul begins with this word, wherefore. So this should tell you, this alarm should go off in your mind. Paul is drawing application from the indicative teaching that he's given us already in this chapter. Uh, As as is the case in many Pauline texts, the structure of his epistles and even the structure of his paragraphs, it usually follows that there's a a lot of of indicative, a lot of teaching, and then there's a lot of application. So 
Today's sermon, this, this morning, will be very applicatory. It will be heavy in application, and that's the good thing about expository preaching. Sometimes you preach sermons that are very heavy in indicatives, and you, you must struggle to, to include application. But sometimes you preach sermons that are very heavy in application, and you must struggle to make sure that you're tying it back into the indicatives. Okay, So this text is very heavy in application. Wherefore... Drawing this application, because the Lord's Supper is an ordinance that symbolizes the death of Christ and the unity of the church as the body of Christ, wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. And that's that's really what, what this text is going to revolve around. Worthy partaking and unworthy partaking. Well, before we answer the question of what it means to come to the Lord's table unworthily, let us first affirm that the truth, uh, the truth, that such a thing is possible. Are you aware, do you not know, that it is possible to do a right thing in a wrong way, therefore being wrong altogether? You can come to church for the wrong reason. And when you do, Paul will say, and he said in verse 17, it's better had you not come at all. You meet together for the worse. It is possible for Christians to observe the Lord's Supper in a manner of unworthiness. In a manner of which Paul said in verse 17, was so polluted that it is better for the church not to meet at all than to come together and so profane the Lord's holy ordinance. Let me just say this by way of context. You need to understand that what Paul is primarily talking about is not unbelievers. He's talking to believers. Yes, we agree. uh, Those who are unregenerate, those who do not know the Lord, have no right to come to the table. But that's not really primarily what Paul's talking about in these verses. What he's talking about in these verses are believers Not just believers, baptized church members coming in an unworthy manner. Well, how do we do such a thing? What does it mean to partake of the Lord's Supper unworthily? Well, first, let me say this. Worthy participation in the Lord's Supper has nothing to do with the inherent worth of the participant. Right. As if we've been holy enough or righteous enough, or good enough, so as to deserve the right to partake because we have attained to some degree of sinlessness. Hear me and hear me well. The Lord's Supper is not a reward for good behavior. If you're looking within yourself for enough worth and value to come to the table, you will never find it. Rather, worthy participation in the supper has everything to do with how we view and esteem the elements and the one they represent. Might I say it this way, how we view and esteem the elements because of the one they represent. How we esteem the one they represent. Worthy participation means that we come to the table with inward humility and repentance and gratitude for what Christ has done, not with some false notion of our own goodness. It means we come with a desire to meet with God and grow in the fellowship with His people. 
It means we come with a very deep, penitent realization of our need for a Savior. For His broken body, for His shed blood, as our only hope for salvation. That's what it means to come worthy to the Lord's Supper. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you, okay? Follow me. Two Christians are heading to church. On their way, they remember, they think about, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. So on their drive, they decide that they're going to take a few moments to pray, to prepare their hearts, to examine themselves for the Lord's Supper. On the way there, the Holy Spirit brings to the conscience of the first Christian, the first man, a sin that he committed earlier in the week. And it was a very grievous sin. It was an embarrassing sin. It was a vile sin. And the Holy Spirit convicts him over this sin. And upon feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, tears begin to stream down his face. He's overwhelmed by a sense of guilt as a transgressor of God's law, and he knows that he deserves divine condemnation because of this sin. He's broken. But in that same moment also, the Holy Spirit reminds him of what Christ has done for him on the cross. Knowing that he could never atone for that sin that he has committed, that's so wicked and so evil, he at once confesses it to God. And he trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of that sin. And he receives assurance from the Holy Ghost that that sin is cleansed by the shed blood of the Savior. Well, the Holy Spirit also begins to work on the conscience of the second man. And as the second man contemplates his week, he realizes that he has been exceptionally given to godliness throughout the previous week. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, God doesn't doesn't call us to walk around moping all the time, I'm just so wicked, I'm so vile, I'm just so evil. Be encouraged. If you set your Bible reading plan for the week and you kept that plan and you come to the end of the week, say, praise God. Look at, look at that. God did it through me. If you improved in your prayer life, if you improved in your Christian walk, be thankful. You don't have to say, well, yeah, I read my Bible, but I'm still just a miserable, good-for-nothing wretch. So this man, he realizes, you know, I've had a good week. I've progressed in godliness. However, the Holy Spirit does bring to mind a particular besetting sin that he had committed earlier in the week. But it is of a much lesser degree than the sin committed by the other man. The Holy Spirit convicts him over this sin. And he thinks about this sin for a brief moment. But then he quickly assures himself that it really isn't that bad. And that after all, he's had a good week. So he doesn't worry about it. And he goes to church. And I ask you, which of these two men is prepared to partake of the supper in a worthy manner? You see the illustration? You understand the moral of the story? Your worthy participation in the supper is not primarily about the the list of sins you did or did not commit. 
but it's about the state of your heart before the Lord through faith and repentance and how you esteem what He has done for you. Because if you say about your sins, oh, they're really not that bad, or oh, my goodness will suffice for me, what you are doing is you're denying the efficacy of His broken body and His shed blood. It is the one who came in true faith with reverence for the one who died on Calvary's cross, trusting fully and only in Christ alone for His salvation, not the man who thought lightly of his sins and trusted in his own goodness. Hodge says of the supper, if we come humbly seeking Him, humbly seeking Him, He will bid us welcome, and He will feed us with that bread, whereof if a man shall eat, he shall never die. But we must come humbly seeking Him. Then Paul goes on and says that the one who eats unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. To partake unworthily is to sin against the Lord. All sins are ultimately against God. We know that, right? But this is a sin that is uniquely directly against Him. If I walk up to Jackson and slap him in the face and insult him, I've sinned against God, but I've sinned against God immediately, right? Through Jackson. I sinned against Jackson, but because Jackson is an image bearer of God, I've sinned against God. But when you come to the Lord's Supper unworthily, your sin truly and really is against God alone. When you come to the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner due to your hypocrisy or due to your irreverence or due to the carelessness with which you have watched over your soul, you're not merely disrespecting the church, nor are you only harming yourself. You're sinning against the one who died for you. Who died for you. If you went to a wedding reception and you were sitting there, you know how wedding receptions are laid out. You have the bridal party that sits up front and kind of all the action happens around there. And let's say you're just sitting in the back with your buddies and you're just cracking beers and telling loud jokes. There's a sense in which you're sinning against everybody there at that wedding party, but your sin is against the bride and groom disrespecting them. So too it is when you come to the table of your heavenly bridegroom unworthily. And so Paul says this, and if you're feeling the weight of sin right now, you really need to start listening. So Paul says this, but let a man examine himself. Let a man examine himself. Uh, This is in the third person imperative, and the third person imperative in English, just doesn't have the same force that it has in Greek. And when we hear this word, let him do this, we we often think of it as, we'll give him permission to do that. But that's not what he's talking about. This is not mere allowance. This is a command. Paul is not suggesting a good idea. He's commanding. Therefore, because of this reality that you can come unworthily, you must examine yourself. The 1833 Particular Baptist Confession of Faith The confession we use here for church membership says in Article 15 with regards to the Lord's Supper, it is preceded always by solemn Mm self-examination. But remember, dear Christian, remember, the purpose of this examination is not to evaluate yourself and see whether or not you've been good enough to come to the table. It's not the purpose of this examination. 
No one has ever been good enough. You say, Pastor, I examined myself and I saw sin after sin. I'm not surprised. Of course you did. You're a sinner. What did you think you were going to find? The purpose of this examination is to ensure that the outward declaration that you make at the supper is consistent with the inner reality of your heart. That yes, I am a sinner, but Christ is my Savior. That's the examination. You're not just looking for your sins. You're looking for for some indwelling pride that would cause you to trust in your own goodness. You're not just looking for your sins. You're looking for those secret sins that you have made a peace treaty with, that you are protecting, that you are refusing to let go of. You're not just looking for your sins. You're looking for those things within you that whisper to you, oh, you're good enough. Oh, you don't need to repent for this. Oh, Christ didn't shed his blood for that sin. That's what you're looking for in this self-examination. Because when you observe this supper, you proclaim the death of Christ. You testify that you're united to him. You profess your faith in his death to save you, not from just some of your sins, but from all of them. And you identify with his people in one body that together belongs to Christ As you examine yourself, search your heart and see if these things be true of you. Are there sins in your life that you have not confessed? Is there an area of your life where you are secretly relying on your own fictitious goodness and not the merits of Christ alone? When preachers prepare to preach, are they relying in their own oratory ability? Are they relying in their own theological knowledge? Are they relying in their charisma? Or are they relying in Christ? When husbands minister to their wives, are they relying in, well, I'm the head of the house and I'm the man around here and I've got it all figured out? Or am I saying, I need Christ to be a husband to my wife? Wives, as you you live with your husband, are you relying on, well, I've got feminine intuition. God's blessed me with an ability to see things and organize and make my home a wonderful place? Or are you saying, I need Christ to be a good wife to my husband? Christ. When you come to church to receive the grace of God through the means of grace, are you relying on, well, I've got a good church to go to and we've got good theology and we're doing the right thing And by virtue of me going there, because I'm such a great Christian, I know God will bless. Or are you saying, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And we need Christ to pour out His grace upon us and to bless us and to cover our sins. Because if we come here and He doesn't, we will receive no blessing. Are there any relationships between you and your brothers and sisters in the church that are hindered because of sin? Sin that you've committed against them. Sins they've committed against you that you haven't addressed. Is there bitterness in your heart towards a brother or sister because you haven't sought reconciliation? These are the things that we're to be looking for in this self-examination. This self-examination, brothers and sisters, is not meant to lead you to despair. It's meant to lead you to the cross. Because you know what will happen when you go looking for imperfections, when you go looking for sins, you will find them. But it's not whether you find sin in your heart. 
that makes you worthy for the Lord's Supper. It's what you do when you find one. Well, I found this sin. Okay, next week, I'm going to work really hard to make up for it. Well, I found this sin, but you know what I think? I think I can fix it. Or do you say, I found this sin, and I'm undone. I, I can't excuse it. I can't, ignore with, I can't ignore it. All I can do is confess it. Lord, here is my sin. I trust Christ. I trust Him to take it away from me. So Paul says, and let a man examine himself. And notice what he says. And let a man examine himself, and if he's found himself unworthy, well, then he should abstain from the Lord's Supper. Is that what Paul says? Well, let a man examine himself, and if he's found sin in his life, he probably should wait it out and come back next month and try again. It's not what he says. I want you all to look at your Bibles. Look at verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Finding sin or broken relationships in your life does not alleviate the command to partake. Paul is not telling the Corinthians, examine yourselves, and if you find yourself unworthy, don't partake. He's saying, examine yourselves, and if you find yourself unworthy, deal with it so that you can come and partake in a worthy manner. God's grace doesn't come in an installment plan. The forgiveness of sins doesn't come in an installment plan. Do you know what that means? That means if you confess your sins to God right here, right now, in the very moment that you place your faith and trust in Christ, you receive the forgiveness of sins. The self-examination describes the manner in which we are to come to the table. It's as if Paul is saying this, let a man come to the table in the manner of examining himself. As he's examining himself, as he has examined himself, as this examination goes on, let him come to the table. But don't let anyone come who's not examining themselves. This is why we fence the table, by the way. This is why we don't just say, all right, it's time to observe the Lord's Supper. Pass out the elements to everyone. Let's take the Lord's Supper. This is why we precede our service by stating who the Lord invites to the table and by providing a moment to stop and to examine our hearts and to confess our sins. The table is fenced and you are warned not to come without examining yourself, but the Lord's Supper is not a time of morbid introspection meant to leave you in despair. Your self-examination may at first cause you to head your head, hang your head in shame, but as soon as your head looks down, may it pop up and see Christ. Amen. You must quickly look to Him. Yes. Murray McShane said, for every look you take at yourself, take ten looks at the Savior. <laughs> see Him for who He is. Trust Him for what He's done. And brothers and sisters, go to His table. If you need to confess your sins, confess your sins. At this church, partaking of the Lord's Supper, we have had members of the church get up before the elements were passed out, go to another brother, and make things right before they came to the table. But they came to the table. You say, well, if we do that, people will know how imperfect we are. May God help us to overcome such pride. May it cause us to have more fear and terror in our hearts to think that we're coming to the table unworthily than 
to think that somebody might realize what everybody already knows about us. We're imperfect. We sin. And sin messes up relationships. And sin messes up our communion with God. But He stands ready this morning. I don't care what it is. I don't care what that sin is in your mind that's bothering you right now. Whatever it is, there's a Savior in heaven who shed His blood who will forgive you of that sin if you trust Him. That's the caution delivered. Secondly, I want you to see the chastisement described. Notice in verse 29, Paul gives this warning. Say, how important is it that we examine ourselves? Well, Paul says that for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. What happens when we come to the supper without self-examination, with no consideration of our sins and our need for Christ? What happens? What happens is that a sacrament that is intended to be a means of grace becomes an occasion for invoking the judgment of God. The word, uh, the world and the, the contemporary church may think very little of the Lord's Supper, but let me assure you that God does not. He does not take lightly to communicants who come to His table in an unworthy manner. He simply doesn't. The Lord does not hold guiltless those who take His name in vain. It's the third commandment. And that's exactly what you're doing when you come to the table unworthily. You're taking His name in vain. In this text, Paul uses several varieties of one word that all means judgment. Most all of our English versions translate it with two or three English words. And the, the word in verse 29 translated as damnation is the same word, judgment. The reason why I point that out to you is because in our modern context, when we think of damnation, we think of eternal condemnation. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the judgment of God on believers. Discipline. That's what he's talking about. This is the sin that believers commit of coming to the Lord's table unworthily, unprepared, with no examination. And Paul says when you do that, you're not discerning the Lord's body. What does that mean? Thank you for making it clear, Paul, right? What does it mean to not discern the Lord's body? Well, those who hold to a physical presence view of the supper, what does that mean? Those Lutherans, uh, Catholics, who think that Christ is physically in the elements, they'll say, see there, you're sitting because you don't realize the physical presence of Christ in the supper. Well, we've addressed that point and seen how that can't mean, in any sense of the, the, the proper understanding of this passage, what Paul is saying here. So what does it mean to not rightly discern the Lord's body? Well, is this a reference to his physical body at all? Or is it a reference to his spiritual body, which is the church? It could be, and this is, this is how I lean on this phrase, that Paul's using a literary device here called a double entendre. Does anybody know what that means, a double entendre? It's when you use a word or a phrase in such a way that it's open to two interpretations and one interpretation is the clear and straightforward meaning of the passage, but the other interpretation is more subliminal and implicit. Here's, here's what I mean. To not discern the Lord's body is to not understand the significance of Christ's death to save you. So it's literally His physical body. You don't understand. You're not rightly discerning. You're not rightly applying His broken body and His shed blood. It is to come to the supper with a merely historical faith. What's a historical faith? It's a faith that 
gives intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel, but does not apply the gospel to your life. Somebody who says, well, yeah, I believe Jesus lived, died, was buried, rose again. I believe that, but it has nothing to do with me. It doesn't change me. Paul says, that's what you're doing when you come unworthily. But let me ask you this. What happens... What happens when someone doesn't understand the significance of the death of Christ? They also don't understand the beauty of the church which he shed to purchase and unite to himself. So that's the implied meaning there. If you don't understand the physical body of Christ that died for you on the cross, you're not going to understand the spiritual body of Christ, which is the church. Double entendre. See, it has... Both of those meanings contained in it. And what he's saying then is that when one comes to the table unworthily, they're sinning vertically and horizontally. The essence of their sin is vertical, but the consequence of that vertical sin is horizontal. And this is a sin that invokes the judgment of God. Well, what does this damnation, this temporal judgment look like, okay? If you've been with me so far, hang on. Because I'm going to preach a verse now that the modern church really does not know what to do with. It's one of those verses that we all know is in the Bible, but we just don't know what to do with it. Paul says in verse 30, For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. What do you mean, Paul? Let's establish the definition of these words here. There's nothing in this context to suggest a spiritual or allegorical interpretation. We must understand these words in their plain sense, meaning that members of the church at Corinth were suffering sickness and even death as a direct result of abusing the Lord's table. I'll remind you, this is not talking about the enemies of God. This is God inflicting sickness and even death upon His people who are in sin. Why do I say it's His people? Because sleep is a euphemism for the death of a Christian. The Bible describes the death of a believer as sleep. never applies to the soul, but it does apply to the body. That's what a Christian is doing after they die. Their soul goes to be with the Lord, but their body sleeps in the grave. And and it's called sleep because it's understood that there's going to be a, a good waking up morning when Christ returns. So this is a sin that invokes the judgment of God and causes God to afflict us with sickness and death. Well, the reason why we don't know what to do with that is because we've become so convinced by the pervading naturalistic philosophy of our age that tells us God no longer works like this. We get sick, we go to the doctor, we get a prescription, we take some medicine, we get better. We rarely, if ever, stop to ask, could God be at work in this? Now, I'm certainly not suggesting uh, that divine judgment is upon you every time you get the sniffles. It's not what I'm suggesting. But I'm also saying that I don't see anything in the Bible that tells me that God no longer works 
through providential events to get our attention and listen to speak to us. And all the hardline cessationists just went, (gasps) yes, of course. That is what Paul is saying. That God, through providential events, speaks to us. And we ought not be afraid of that reality. Could it be that we, as Calvinists, who love to talk so much about the providence of God, have become desynthesized to it? Could it be that we have been so afraid of the charismatic movement and the obvious abuses of the Holy Spirit that we have become afraid of any intimate workings of the Spirit through the events of our lives? This hasn't always been the case amongst the people of God who held to an orthodox and robust Reformed theology. There's a story from the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. When Jonathan Edwards was preaching to a packed church that had a balcony, and the balcony collapsed, and miraculously, no one was killed. But do you know what the church did? The church didn't say, well, you know what? We really need to call a contractor to come out here and reinforce the bracings on this balcony because they didn't hold up. What the church did was they called a solemn day of prayer and fasting to discern if and how they might have offended God. That's what they did. They didn't get up and and have some guy calling himself a prophet say, "Uh, now I know exactly why God did this. Because we don't know. We don't know the secret will of God. And we don't hear direct revelation from God because there is no new direct revelation coming from God. The canon of Scripture is closed. So yes, I agree. If someone gets up and says, thus saith the Lord... He better quote the scriptures to us. But don't be so shut off from the supernatural, so closed to the working of God that you don't stop when God brings providential events to pass in your life, that you don't stop to ask and say, God, what are you, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? What do you want me to see from this? Well, it would take a whole other sermon to really get into how all that works out and the, the ministry of the Spirit in our lives and the fullness of the Spirit in guiding us and leading us through these types of events. But no theologian in American history was more a champion of the doctrines of grace and confessional theology than Jonathan Edwards. He was no charismatic Pentecostal, but yet he realized God had allowed to come to pass and ordained to come to pass this cataclysmic event with this balcony falling? What are you trying to tell us from this, God? So Paul is saying, all those people in your church that are getting sick, that are weak, that are dying, you don't have the spiritual maturity and insight like you think you do to realize that that's coming as a direct result of your sins. Can we say that about things in our church? No, because we don't have prophetic insight, but Paul does. He's an apostle. And Paul says to them, they're dying because of the sin that's being committed in the church. And really, what Paul says here ought not come as a shock. Remember how he described the Israelites in chapter 10. 
1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did eat that same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. What does that sound like to you? Eating the same spiritual meat, drinking the same spiritual drink. Does that not sound like a foretaste of the Lord's Supper? They all drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were written for our example. What are we to learn from that? Well, we're to learn from that, that if we come to the place of God's worship, and we take God's ordinances in an unworthy manner, we will suffer the same deaths that they suffered. You say, well, surely, Pastor, in 2023... In America, God no longer judges His people with sickness and death for coming to the table unworthily. Prove that to me with your Bible. Prove that to me with your Bible. This this, is not some spiritual gift. This isn't Paul talking about tongues. He'll do that in the next chapter. Show me in your Bible where it's no longer a sin worthy of the judgment of God to come to the table unworthily. And then he says this, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. That is this. If we examine ourselves and deal with our sins and confess them to God and receive the forgiveness of our sins in Christ, then God would not have to inflict judgment upon us because of our sins. Proverbs 28 and verse 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. See, if you try to cover up your sin. God will bring it out in the open and deal with it. But if you bring your sin out in the open before God, God will hide your sin. He will grant mercy. And it is better to receive the mercy of God that hides your sin and covers your sin under the blood of Christ than it is to suffer the judgment of God because of your refusal to acknowledge and confess your sins. Every time you come to the Lord's table, you are put at a crossroads. What are you going to do with your sins? Will you ignore them? Will you pretend they aren't there? Will you make yourself believe that our all-knowing, all-seeing, omniscient, omnipotent God doesn't notice them? Or will you acknowledge them? Yes, Lord, I am a great sinner. But Christ is a greater Savior. Wash me with His blood and I shall be clean. The purpose of Paul's teaching here is not talking about the confession of sin, what that looks like. You know, we struggle with the question, how far should I confess my sins? There are some sins that might require you going to the one you sinned against and confessing to that person. There are some sins that might require you standing up in front of the church and confessing your sin. But what Paul is getting at is that with this self-examination, the vast majority of our sins to receive experientially forgiveness for those sins don't require anything more than confessing them to God. Do your business between you and Him. And then come to this table with joy. 
But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. See, again, this is not the language of punitive condemnation. It's the language of fatherly discipline. You say, why did God afflict the church with sickness and death? So that they would be made aware of their great need for repentance. God chastises every son he receives. And he chastens us, listen to me, because he is more committed to our holiness than he is to our happiness. He's more committed to our perseverance in godliness than he is to our comfort in the world. He's more committed to you living your life for his honor and his glory than your ease of life. He wants you to live sold out to Christ in the gospel, not just sold out to the American dream. And it's in those times of discipline that God reveals the ugliness of our sin and the hidden evils of our heart, and He grants us repentance as He draws us closer to Him. Discipline is not meant to be comfortable. And by the way, discipline is not a bad thing, nor does it mean God is angry with you. The discipline of God is the very proof that He loves you. The judgment of God on His people is restorative, not punitive. It is formative in as much as it is corrective. Sometimes the discipline of God will come upon you and you'll say, what great sin have I committed? And the answer will be, no great sin. This discipline is here to keep you from committing some great sin. You ask, well, how do I differentiate between the judgment of God and the affliction of the devil? Well, are you convinced over a remaining sin in your life that you haven't dealt with? Or are you feeling guilty for a sin that you have repented of and you have turned away from? God isn't punitive. He doesn't bring out our dirty old laundry and repetitively make us feel bad for our past sins. God doesn't do that to us. But He does smite our conscience and bring conviction for sins that are still alive and well within us. So I plead with you this morning, brother, sister, do not create a safe haven for your sins. Do not make a peace treaty with iniquity. Do not give a corner of your heart where your sins can be alive and well and roam free and the rest of it is for your religion. Oh, but may Christ have it all, fully conquering your heart by His grace. And when you eat this bread and drink this wine, may you not do it harboring unrepentant sins lest you lie to God. When you come to the table with unrepented, unconfessed, undealt with sin in your life, you are saying to God, I'd rather have this sin than the fullness of Christ. In that moment, you have a greater affection and a stronger desire for your secret, unrepentant sins than you do for the one who is represented by the bread and wine that you hold in your hands. And the Lord will judge those who come unworthy to His supper. And the purpose of this judgment will be to bring you to an end of yourself that you might see Christ and Christ alone as the supreme satisfaction of your soul. Well, thirdly and lastly, very quickly, I want you to see the concluding directions. What Paul does in verses 33 and 34 is he sums up all this teaching on the Lord's Supper and he readdresses the two specific Corinthian abuses. What were they? Number one, uh, they 
are using the supper to further division in the church by not coming together together. So he says in verse 33, Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. When a member of the body is not present, we all feel it. How especially true that is at the Lord's Supper. We feel it. Can I share with you a sad statistic? As small as our church is, we have never, ever, not a single time, partaken of the Lord's Supper with every single communing member present. Ever. Terry, one for another. Sometimes it's been legitimate sickness, providential hindrance, but we should feel that. And that should remind us that it won't always be that way. But there's coming a supper, there's coming a meal, there's coming a feast at which the fullness of God's elect will be present. And secondly, they disgrace the Lord's Supper by turning it into a common meal. And so Paul says in verse 34, if any man hunger, let him eat at home. That you come not together unto condemnation. And then he says, and the rest will I set in order when I come. A common cup, little thimbles, I'll set that in order when I come. Fermented wine, grape juice, I'll set that in order when I come. Uh, All these other things, I'll set in order when I come. But what I want you to understand is the significance of Christ in this supper. Because of Christ, we can examine ourselves, listen to me, we can examine ourselves with no fear of what we might find. On the cross, Jesus bore all of our ugliness and the hideousness of our sin, and He delivered us from the power of our inward corruption. Christian, be comforted. Be encouraged. There is nothing in you so evil that He does not already know about and love you in spite of. And His love was displayed and He took that evil and He took that sin and He took that wickedness and He bore it in His own body and He went to the cross and the wrath of God was poured out upon Him and He satisfied the wrath of God and you are accepted this morning because of what He has done for you. May we praise Him for His marvelous grace and may we come to His table. Don't cling to your sins but cling to Christ. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us, for the gift of the Lord's Supper, for the ministry of the Spirit that moves and convicts. Oh, Father, as I look out upon faces, some smiling and some troubled, may you grant repentance and faith. May you grant joy as we examine ourselves before we come to this table. Father, clean us that we might be clean. May we experience the forgiveness of sins because of what Christ has done on the cross. May you bless us and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.